Welcome to the Kotki Ride Home for Tuesday, August 3rd, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, Edgar Allan Poe wasn't just the sad author of spooky tales we all know and love, but also a passionate science journalist. And the writings he left behind can tell us a lot about our current relationship to misinformation and science communication. Plus, Starbucks officially sells more cold drinks than hot ones now, by a lot. What is responsible for the trend, and how do baristas feel about it? And the newly redubbed Cleveland Guardians can't catch a break when it comes to their team name. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. We all know Edgar Allan Poe for his big hits. The Raven, The Telltale Heart, and rising in popularity over the last year, Mask of the Red Death. But did you know that the only real bestseller he had while he was alive was an abridged version of a textbook about conch shells? He mostly took the job because he needed the cash, as usual, but he was well-suited for the task because he was fascinated by science and all of the ways how we thought about the world was changing in his time, his time being, as a reminder, the first half of the 1800s. Writing in Slate, John Tresh, the author of the recent book The Reason for the Darkness of the Night, Edgar Allan Poe and the Forging of American Science, explains, quote, Poe was obsessed with science and the reasons people doubt or believe it. In his lifetime, scientific practice and explanation were on the rise, but it faced even fiercer opposition than it does today. Though he followed its developments closely and championed its advance, he also pointed out its limits and abuses. In ways that researchers and science communicators today might usefully consider, Poe showed how science's power depended on political support, on the frank admission of its fallibility, and on telling a good story. End quote. Poe didn't have any sort of formal scientific training. He left the University of Virginia after one year and later got kicked out of West Point, but as a journalist, he kept abreast of developments in the world of science and seemed committed to understanding them with a critical eye, something not everyone was doing back then. I love how Tresh describes this through the lens of the early 19th century and its parallels to our current era, because it's something that I think about a lot and part of why I'm so fascinated by the 19th century. Quoting Tresh in Slate, photography, steam engines, telegraphs, and railroads were taken as signs of limitless progress through technical innovation. The discovery and study of geological strata revealed by excavations to create canals and railways showed the Earth's relentless and sometimes catastrophic evolution, while new theories for the formation of planets, stars, and galaxies challenged the biblical narrative of creation. The idea that animal species might have evolved through purely material processes found growing support, as well as heated theological resistance. Meanwhile, a hunger for information and entertainment was met by self-declared doctors who preached new health cures and by lecturers who presented wild theories on topics from astronomy to zoology across the country. On Broadway, P.T. Barnum's American Museum invited debate about discoveries such as the Fiji mermaid, a monkey's upper body sewn to the tail of a fish, while itinerant antebellum tech bros touted investment schemes for electric communications and flying machines. 
As these clashes over knowledge and the order of nature raged, and as the storm over slavery was brewing, the U.S. was undergoing a media revolution. The number of newspapers and magazines exploded. News items were cut, copied, and reprinted in other publications, not unlike how a retweet spreads text and images across Twitter today, and with just as much uncertainty about the original writer's intention or credibility. End quote. All of these parallels and the tension between real, genuine scientific advancement versus all those hucksters and rampant manipulation of the public is a key underlying thread throughout much of United States history, at least as outlined by writer Kurt Anderson in his book Fantasyland. Some periods of time, like the early 19th century and today, feel it more intensely, but that tension is almost always there. And while there are some flavors of it that are uniquely American, check out Anderson's book for a great elucidation on magical thinking vis-a-vis -vis American exceptionalism, I know it's also not only an American problem. But living through some of the aforementioned, Poe was determined to promote the positive, or at least critical and rational side of scientific innovation in his writing, both nonfiction and fiction. Several of his stories hinged on facets of natural science, mechanics, and the powers of observation and reasoning. But for all that he promoted the scientific method and the importance of discerning truth from fiction, he also intentionally misled people with a handful of hoaxes published in newspapers and magazines. In one, he claimed that a hot air balloon had crossed the Atlantic, and in another, he described someone who had been kept alive thanks to hypnosis, a completely made-up claim that ended up being cited in various medical journals of the time. Maybe he thought people smart enough would get that they were jokes, but that only demonstrates his occasional lapses in understanding how not discerning many were at the time, and still are. Or maybe that was exactly the point. He liked playing pranks, and he liked exposing weaknesses in science and in humanity. Some of his stories read like satire of various scientific claims and discoveries. Despite the consequences, he probably thought it was funny to trick thousands of people into believing his hot air balloon and hypnosis stories. Pranks aside, the thing is, Poe was very clear that, quoting Tresh, "...facts don't speak for themselves." End quote. That is, ample evidence was of course good and better than pure speculation, but facts and evidence needed to be buoyed by story. They needed to be communicated in a way that would make sense to people beyond the scientists making the discoveries, to fit together coherently in people's minds. In some of his final writing, Poe emphasized what he called the unity of effect, and as Tresh says, quote, his sense that truth is inseparably bound with how it is communicated. End quote. I think this is something that we can all feel the importance of today, the vitality that people understand science more clearly and rationally, and the frequent failures of whatever we want to lay the blame on, the media, social media, public officials, science communicators, the failures of them to prioritize comprehension over spectacle, or to take the time to teach and explain rather than shouting facts and jargon to an empty room. Tresh concludes, quote, Poe reminds us that instead of preaching ready-made truths from their elevated perch and shaking their heads at those who refuse to hear, scientists can enhance their authority by revealing their long chains of collective reasoning, doubt, and testing, and by telling and retelling their stories through a variety of perspectives, genres, and forms. The effort to find creative ways of convincing various people of the robustness and validity of scientific methods and claims shouldn't be seen as wasteful pandering, but as providing the necessary care that vital information needs to thrive. 
Poe's plots and literary virtuosity also make clear that STEM fields, though important, are doomed to wilt if they're deprived of the skills taught by the humanities. Rhetoric, interpretation, and dramatization are essential for narrating the twists of conjecture and discovery, and for conveying scientific conclusions so that people not only understand them, but are moved to follow their implications. End quote. Barely a week after announcing their name change from the Cleveland Indians to the Cleveland Guardians, the Ohio Major League Baseball team already faced another controversy. The name Cleveland Guardians was already taken by a men's roller derby team. And there is so much to wonder about with this story. First, there are men's leagues for roller derby? Who knew? Second, did no one working for the MLB team really know this? Like, really? I mean, I'm not saying that anyone should have heard about this roller derby team, although they've been competing in the Men's Roller Derby Association since 2016 and seem like a fun bunch. But I mean, when you're changing your brand name, step one is to Google the name you're considering. Maybe I'm biased because I worked in communications and handled a number of name changeovers, but also... Do they not have anyone working in communications for them? I mean, who tweeted out that announcement video? Did they make Tom Hanks do it himself? Because not only does this roller derby team own ClevelandGuardians.com, they also own the social media handles for Cleveland Guardians on Instagram and Facebook. I get that the roller derby team's SEO probably isn't that great, so maybe they didn't pop up from a cursory search of the term Cleveland Guardians, but surely someone at the franchise tried typing in what would be their new handle into these social media platforms before they made the final decision. Quoting Deadspin, Earlier in the week, it appeared that the baseball team and the roller derby team were coming to some sort of agreement, or were in talks, as both remained pretty mum on the subject. However, the MLB team filed a trademark application on July 23rd, and the roller derby team followed suit on the 27th. It goes deeper than that, as the baseball team filed a trademark in April in Mauritius, which it will claim gives it priority. End quote. And... What's up with the Mauritius thing? Well, there's a lot of complicated reasoning, but for the purposes of this story, just know that you could file a trademark on, say, today in Mauritius, and then not file a trademark in the U.S. until, say, October. But your priority date for the application would be that earlier date of today when you filed in Mauritius. So technically, the roller derby team will have an earlier trademark application date than the baseball team. That won't be the whole story, of course. The roller derby team has been fairly inactive online, which could mean that the baseball team would make an argument that they'd been inactive long enough for them to take the name. I think Deadspin has about the right take, though. Quote, A settlement in any range of six figures would be a king's ransom for a roller derby team, and should be a pittance for the MLB team. Except that this is the MLB team that's eschewed having an actual MLB outfield for years and probably cost themselves a World Series because of it, so we know it tosses around nickels like kettlebells. Clearly, the roller derby team has already gotten more publicity out of this than it could have imagined, and should squeeze as much as it can out of this before it eventually has to give up the fight. Which it will, because we know that it won't be able to spend as much as an MLB team can on any legal battle. Still, it's an amazing lesson in how obtuse a company as large as the Cleveland baseball team can be. End quote. (laughs) 
Starbucks, founded in 1971 as a coffee bean store, didn't actually start selling beverages until the mid-80s. Originally just basic coffee and espresso drinks, they didn't introduce the famous branded Frappuccino until 1995. And now, their cold drinks, including the Frappuccino, as well as iced espresso drinks, cold brew, and refreshers, outsell the hot drinks by a lot. According to Business Insider, cold drinks now make up 74% of their total beverage sales, an increase of nearly 45% over the past four years, up from 64% in 2019 and up from just 37% in 2013. How did the flip happen, and why are cold drinks becoming so much more popular than their steamy counterparts? Rachel Ruggieri, Starbucks' chief financial officer, attributes the trend in part to the tastes of millennial and Gen Z customers. Which, from watching trends, I would say is fairly accurate. You know, iced coffee and cold brew are sometimes less drink preferences and more badges of identity, jolts of allegiance to the zeitgeist, embraced with an amused self-awareness as markers of particular stereotypes. And fueling the fire even more is yet another re-emergence of the alleged secret menu items, this time proliferating on TikTok, but in even greater numbers than ever. And the most popular at the moment is the iced white mocha with vanilla sweet cream cold foam and extra caramel drizzle. Baristas speaking anonymously to Business Insider have reported making at least 15 of those exact drinks a day, which is both a lot and not that much. For a sense of scale, I regularly made over a hundred frappuccinos a shift working summers at a Starbucks kiosk in the Grapevine Mills Mall, and that was many years before cold drinks were anywhere near as popular as they are now. The hot bar was far busier than the frapp station. Granted, those were all of different flavors, so if I was getting 15 of one exact customization in a shift, that would be pretty remarkable. And before I get to back in my day about my Starbucks barista experience, I will say baristas these days are facing a lot of challenges I don't envy. If it was a slow day, I had fun with customers' more creative customizations or tried coming up with my own, sure. But those requests can become frustrating when you've got an unending queue of drinks coming in during a rush, especially with how many customers think that they're ordering off some official secret menu and not just some weird thing someone on TikTok came up with, and also not realizing that because it's not actually a Starbucks-created drink, the store might not have all the ingredients on hand. A lot of ingredients are seasonal. And there's no guarantee it'll actually taste good or look just like the picture they saw online, so then they might get upset. Business Insider reports that, per a Starbucks spokesperson, a full quarter of customized beverages have more than three unique modifications. It's working for the company, though. Quoting Business Insider, CEO Kevin Johnson said on the company's third quarter earnings call Tuesday that this high demand for cold drinks, coupled with more people customizing their drinks and adding food to their orders, helped the chain to post its highest ever net quarterly revenues of $7.5 billion, a 78% increase year over year. End quote. It's all been fairly well calculated, however. TikTok and general swings in taste might be responsible for the bulk of the cold beverage uptick, but according to a Wall Street Journal report last week, the company has been strategically pushing iced and customized drinks because they cost more. Quoting the Wall Street Journal, Inflation and supply chain disruptions cut into Starbucks' profit for its most recent quarter, the company said, and inflation and higher wages are likely to further push up costs. That could lead Starbucks to lift menu prices in some markets, executives said. It's also 
promoting cold beverages and ones that are custom-made, which tend to be more expensive, end quote. And for reference, a standard grande latte here in New York City is currently $4.75, while that iced white mocha with vanilla sweet cream cold foam and extra caramel drizzle is just over 7 bucks. So, yeah, Starbucks knows what they're doing and are probably perfectly happy with this trend, with the takeouts of Lillian Stone half-jokingly speculating that Starbucks could be in bed with big TikTok. Of course, just because it's good for the company doesn't mean every barista's day-to-day experience is great. An additional gripe some of them have reported is something that, because mobile ordering didn't exist when I last worked at Starbucks, had never occurred to me. If a customer doesn't pick up their mobile order of a cold drink fast enough, it melts, which often means baristas have to remake it. Now, with rising revenues, maybe Starbucks is fine eating that cost, but it's definitely frustrating. Starbucks did say on that earnings call, though, that they're doing some things to help out baristas. They're continuing the rollout of a cold brew system that makes brewing the popular beverage more efficient, so that will save time and effort, which is good news because, hard as it may be to believe, pumpkin spice latte season is just around the corner. Last year, Starbucks launched the PSL line on August 25th the earliest ever launch for the autumnal-themed drinks. So despite the heat waves happening through the country, it could be mere days before baristas are inundated with orders for that sweet and spicy burst of fall in a cup. Well, it looks like I might have cursed it. The Boeing CST-100 Starliner launch did not go on as planned today. About two hours before the scheduled launch, NASA tweeted out, quote, NASA, Boeing, and ULA launch have scrubbed today's launch to the space station due to unexpected valve position indications in the Starliner propulsion system. The next launch opportunity would be August 4th at 12.57 p.m. Eastern, end quote. And that's interesting, because all I'd been expecting was a bad weather delay. It has just been one problem after another for years for the CST-100 Starliner, but I guess we'll see what happens tomorrow. And that is it from me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.